Happy New Year and good morning. It's a great joy to be gathered here to worship God and uh, to hear his word. We've been uh, traveling through the book of Romans. Not so that we can get to Rome, but so that we can get to heaven. So kindly turn to Romans 11. With the new year, we begin a new chapter. So I will be hoping to cover Romans 1, uh, 11, 1 to 6. Uh, but let's read verse 1 through 10. Romans 11. Please hear the word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it by the rest. Uh, excuse me. The, the elect obtained it by the rest were hundred, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bed their backs forever. There is the word of God. There are those of you that I wish to commend for your New Year resolutions. Today you came to church early. And actually you came to church. There are those of you whom I wish to especially address as I begin this summer. Which unbeliever, and I know that there are unbelievers here, young and old, who have not been reconciled to God? Who can say, I am not saved because God has rejected me? If God has rejected you, and you've gone to him and called upon the name of the Lord, over and over again, 
And he has said, I will not save you. Lift up your hand. No one. Isn't it? I'm not seeing any hand. No one can say, I am not saved because God has rejected me. If you're not saved, it's because you have rejected God until this point, isn't it? It's not because God has rejected you. It's because you have been rejecting God. You've had the gospel over and over again. You've been invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again. We've just sung. Christ receiveth sinful man, even me with all my sin. And we've re repeated that over and over again. Christ receives sinful man. So really, why are you not saved? Except you have been rejecting God. Well, you can respond and say, Pastor, I've made the first step by New Year resolution. I've come to church. I've come to hear the gospel. I will heed the gospel. Praise God. I hope you will heed the gospel. But that question of, has God rejected his people, is a question that needs to be considered very seriously. You see, how we understand how the, the, the last things will take place, uh, what you call eschatology, you know, the doctrine of the last things beginning with your own death and then going to the folding up of the universe by God, by the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. All that, eschatology as we call it, is collect, uh, closely connected to how we understand Romans 11. Especially as with respect to the nation of Israel, as with respect to the Jews. You know, when the Six-Day War occurred in 1960s in Palestine and the Jews recaptured Jerusalem. Most theologians who are reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. They were saying that finally things are coming to a close. So the, uh, the reconstitution of the nation of Israel in 1948 led to a lot of speculation about the coming of the Lord. In fact, Many were saying that the Lord Jesus will return within that generation. Now, we are in about two generations afterwards. The Lord has not yet come. And the question is, are we living in the end times? Are these the last days? Yes, these are the last days. And you need to know that God has a plan of how he's going to 
work all these things out, including the inclusion of the nation, uh, I mean, the people of Israel. And so this is a question that uh, uh, Paul is addressing in this chapter. And I want you to pay close attention to how, uh, to what he says in the next six verses. First of all, he says, it's not about an ethnic community. It's not about a nation. It's not about global, um, you know, uh, dividing of one part of the world and saying that it's this as opposed to that. Says it is about a group called remnant. The group called the remnant. And this group is saved by grace. It's chosen by grace and it's saved by grace. For your information, verse 5 of uh, Romans 11 has been my favorite verse for 10 years. And so whenever I send you an email, you will see that verse. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant saved by grace. I love that verse. That, that verse fuels my evangelism. When I talk with people, I know that they, that person could be part of the remnant saved by grace. So when I open my mouth, it's with a hope that that person can believe and belong to that remnant saved by grace. When I go out on the mission trip to Marsabit and uh, our lips are parched and we, we are almost being burnt by the sun, I remember there is a remnant saved by grace among the Radili people. When I've gone to countries like uh, South Sudan to preach the gospel, and uh, I've been, um, well, this last trip was not very interesting. I haven't gone there because I'm not very keen on going back because of what happened. But even then, I must be reminded of the fact that there is a remnant saved by grace among the South Sudanese. Among the Nuris and the Dinkas. So that does energize me to preach the gospel. I don't know about you. There is. So too at the present time there is a remnant. Chosen and saved by grace. Two things I wish to point out to you in this text. First of all. It's a fact that. God has not rejected his people. Verse 1 through 4. God has not rejected his people, uh, Israelites, the ethnic Jews, because one, Paul is an Israelite and he's been saved by grace. Elijah was an Israelite. He was saved by grace. And God had kept for himself how many? 7,000 
who had not bowed their knee to Baal because they were saved by grace. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the fact that at the present time, not just in history, but now and forever, God has a remnant that have been chosen by grace and that will be saved by grace. So let us consider the fact that God has not rejected his people because then Paul says, I say or I ask, as God rejected his people, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the Jews? Has he cast them away from grace and from salvation? We know that God and set apart Israel as a nation from his own, uh, uh, for his own use. And we know that he told them, you of all the people in the earth, I have chosen you. Not because you're many, not because you are anything about you that is so lovely, but because of me. And so he became their king. He established a covenant with them. And he gave them his laws to follow in Mount Sinai. But as soon as the law landed, they were rebellious. Turned away from God, gone to worship the golden calf. They were rebellious. And they were overthrown by other nations like Assyria. And Babylon were exiled. But then they came back. God brought them back. So the efforts of uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and many others, including Nehemiah and Ezra, were all involved in the gathering back of the nation of Israel. Then the Lord Jesus Christ came. But in 70 AD, the Romans invaded Israel again. And they, uh, they conquered Jerusalem. They tore apart the temple. And they completely ransacked it and burnt it to the, to the ashes. Jerusalem was destroyed forever. Or is it forever? Jews were ejected from their country and they were scattered through the world. Think about the Jews all over the world. So there are Kenyan Jews, there are American Jews, there are Brazilian Jews, they're all over the world. But if you've related closely, with the Jews, you would know that they've never lost their identity as Jews. I mean, I see young people come for school in uh, Nairobi, from college, from their shards. Four years they are in school and they are going back home over the holidays. But um, 
They come back to the sheikhs and they tell us that you will excuse me, I can't speak my mother tongue. Allow me to use Kiswahili. What's their identity so fast? People go to America. They come back. Within a week, they have changed their language and lost Kiswahili. Not the Jews. Not the Jews. They have very, very strong identity. And this, is, this was particularly proved three months ago when Hamas invaded Israel. And within 24 hours, there were hundreds of thousands of people who were willing to enlist in IDF, that is Israel Defense Forces, and serve in their army from all over the world. I mean, their airport was jammed with people coming in wanting to fight. The Hamas. Despite 2,000 years of exile, they've never lost their ethnic and national identity. They have unquenchable awareness of their ethnic and national identity as Israel. So the answer Paul gives then to that question, has God rejected his people? Is very clear. What's the answer? By no means. In other words, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? God has not rejected his people. But then the question is, is there any hope for the Israelites that there is anyone among them who is elect of God and thus within the commonwealth of Israel? And what's the answer? Yes. Yes. But what is the proof that God has not rejected his people? Three evidences. Live evidences. And the first one is Paul himself. And what does he say? How can you ask that question when I'm, in, when I'm here? Well, my name is Oh, well, Saul, so, I'm a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians, a member, and he is wearing that badge proudly, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What is Paul saying there? You're saying or you are insinuating or suggesting that God has rejected his people. And here I am, Paul. Do you not, do you not know that I am a Jew, a descendant or a seed of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin? I am a Jew and God has not rejected me. Paul is saying. And this is a living proof. And so Paul rejects the possible conclusion that Israel is rejected in totality. 
He is saying that Israel has not been rejected. Israel will not be rejected by God. Paul identified with his people, the Jews. But Paul is a remnant. And he is saying that he is not alone. Paul himself being a Jew is a clear living evidence that God has not totally rejected the Jews. The Jews are not rejected for being Jews. They're not rejected for being Israelites. Because they've rejected the only hope for their salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh is descended from them. Paul has already said that in chapter 9. To them, he said, the law, the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law. To them belong the worship and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs and from the race, according to the flesh, is who? Is the Christ who is God over all, blessed for him. Amen. In a statement of fact, Paul is saying, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I am one of them. The Israelites are his people. God foreknew them in the eternity past. God elected them for salvation. And he has a definite plan for them. He has not rejected them. It is they who have rejected him because I, Paul, I received him, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. And so I'm included amongst God's people. Secondly, that's the first evidence that God has not rejected his people. Number two, Elijah, the Tishubite, he was from Gilead. You can see that in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Paul tells us of Elijah, of how he thought that the nation of Israel was all apostate. Elijah appeared to God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone, I am left. And they seek my life. You remember a sermon preached by D. Merrick last year, July, of the depression of Elijah. He talks about it too. Context is that Elijah appears almost from nowhere, appears in Israel. He is told by God to go and present himself to King Ahab and tell him because of the continued rebellion and anarchy and treason against their king of kings, the Lord God, there will be no dew, no rain for three years and a half. And Elijah did that. Went to King Ahab. Told him, 
because of your continued infatuation with 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 um, Bell because of your love for your wife Jezebel and for her love for idolatry and because you've fallen prey to those idols and because you've turned the nation aside from God nor dew nor rain for three and a half years then the Bible says in chapter 18 that after three years at the end of that uh, at the end of that period God again appeared to Elijah and he told him go present yourself to King Ahab And let them gather all the prophets of Baal. Let's meet at Mount Carmel. Let's offer sacrifices to our God. Let's see whether their God is a living God. God who answers by fire, he is God. So they took the challenge. So many prophets of Baal were all gathered together and they were willing to take the challenge. They were given a bull. Elijah was given a bull. They were told to go fast and they gladly took the opportunity. They sacrificed, they slaughtered their bull and they did all that they needed to do in preparation. They put the bull down. Then it's time for prayer to Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. All day. And the Bible says that at noon, People looked at their watches and they said, you've been at this for quite a while. And Elijah was like, well, your God, has he gone on a journey? Your God, is he relieving himself? Your God, is he asleep? And they, they said they will increase the volume and lash themselves and see whether... Baal will turn up. And the Bible says that they were limping and jumping and doing all sorts of things, waiting for Baal to respond. Baal is not alive, so he's not going to respond. He may have hand, but he cannot think. He may have eyes, but he does not see. He may have ears, but really can't hear. He may have legs, but Psalm 115 describes him. He's helpless. And the Bible says that Elijah, when the time for the evening oblation came, the very right time, he prepared the sacrifice for the Lord God, for the Lord Jehovah. He said, the sacrifice is too dry for my God. Bring water. Remember that it has been dry for how long? Pour in some more water. Drench the whole thing. Fill even the trenches around it. Let's see whether our God will respond. And he said, Lord, you are God. Please, do yourself. Take the sacrifice. And the Bible says that the Lord appeared and consumed not just the sacrifice, but the firewood and everything else and the water, everything was consumed all by God. 
the God who answers by fire, he is God. But that's not the end of the story. Elijah said, seize them. Because they are idolaters, seize them. And let's see whether their God will fight for them. Kill them and see whether their God will resurrect them. And that's what happened. All the prophets of Baal came to nothing just like their God. And Jezebel heard about it. And he said, Elijah, if you do not become like those, then I will also be dead. Believe it or not, Elijah took that seriously. After the prophets have been slaughtered, God has appeared, and then he is threatened by Jezebel, and he takes it that, it that seriously. And he is depressed, and he is suicidal. But then he's also telling God, God, I am the only one. Take my life as well. He has too quickly forgotten. And so he says, Lord, they have killed your prophet. Wait a minute. Whose prophets have been killed? Openly. The prophets of Baal, right? Granted, in chapter 18, we are told by Obadiah that so many of the prophets had been killed, but Obadiah had hid a hundred of them in groups of fifties. But then here is Elijah saying, as far as he can remember, the prophets who died were the prophets of God. He's forgotten. And he is saying here that they've also demolished your altars. Then I alone I'm left. Well, before we throw any other stone to Elijah, who has not been there? Reformed brothers come to me and they say, you know, I got to know the gospel. And I looked around, there was no church. And I was worshiping all alone. I was live streaming churches in America because there was no church in Kenya. Elijah syndrome, isn't it? That's what it is. They thought that they were the only ones. But God surprised them. And when they came, we told them, actually, there is a church closed at where you are. Go there. Then I know some brothers who lived right here in Greenfield. Right here in Donbon. And they were saying, God, there is no church. I alone am left, and they seek my life. That is the charismatics, I suppose. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, the charismatics are not very simple. We do have a Jezebel-like spirit in the, in, the, in the state house right now, in case you didn't know. We do. When you hear that Benihini is being called, what, what comes to your mind, surely? What comes to your mind when you hear that uh, Selman is being called and he's going to pray for our nation? These people are unbelievers. They are idolaters. They are, in a sense, worse, worse 
than the prophets of Baal. We should be saying, seize them. Because they are also using our tax to harm over. That's why the taxes keep on increasing, I suppose. But we can say, I am not left alone. There are all these saints. And I can say that. That there are all of you who know the Lord, who know the truth, and who will not listen to their shenanigans. And they will, you will read the Bible and you'll be content with that. God has kept for himself how many? God has kept for himself how many? 7,000. Is it 7,001 or 7,002? Is it 7,999 or 7,000? What is this 7,000? Is this a number to limit God or is it a perfect number to say God has his elect and they are all over the place and God will not have them diminished by any Jezebel spirit. They will continue. God will not have them reduced by any Elijah syndrome. Because God has how many? 7,000 plus? 7,000 plus who? Plus Elijah. Thank you. God has his 7,000 who are faithful. In every generation. Surely 7,000 does not mean that there were only 7,000 and no more. It meant. Seven as a perfect number, a number of perfection, com communicating that God has his people all in every generation, in every nation, present, worshipping him always. They are never more, nor less. They may be visible, they may be invisible, but they exist. You may know them, you may not know them, but they exist. God's 7,000 who are faithful and who do not bow their knee to Baal. Elijah syndrome then be gone. We must not imagine that we are the only ones. Because God has more than we know. God has more than we know. God has his elect in your family. God has his elect in your village, in your estate. God has his elect in your company, in your organization. God has his elect in every place. And you have a responsibility. Bring the gospel to them. Will you? Will you? Number two, the present time remnant. The first point there is historical. But there is similarity between then and now. He makes an explicit comparison of then and the present. And what does he say? In verse 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, 
there is a remnant chosen by grace. As it was in the days of Elijah, when God had his 7,000 who were faithful to him and who had not bowed their knee to Baal, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. This point is current redemptive reality of the elect, both the Jews and the Gentiles, in which God has preserved is 7,000 who have not bowed down to the bells of the present time. Here then is the, is the time of eschatological realization or eschatological fulfillment of the prophet's promise. You first of all notice that the present time remnant is chosen by grace. Has God rejected, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What did he do with those whom he foreknew? Back to Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, what did he do with them? He also predestined, conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So those whom he foreknew, what did he do with them? He predestinated them. And what did he do with those whom he predestined? In their own lifetime, he called them effectually by the power of the gospel, like you're hearing right now. Hope. There is no way God can foreknow and fail to call. When he foreknew them, he will, uh, he will also predestinate them and call them. And he calls them. They will call upon his name. And when they call upon his name, Romans 10, 13, they will be saved. Does it matter whether they are Jews or Gentiles? Does it matter whether they are men or women? Does it matter whether they are young children or older people? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then we can say that they are saved by grace. It simply states, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Their race, it's not their might be. It is a, their race. And this remnant is not chosen by their blood or by their lineage. It is chosen by who? God. And it is chosen by God's grace. At the present time refers to the days of Paul, but it also refers to the current time and to the future time until the Lord returns. This is what is called the last days. The eschatological age, the last days. There has never been a time when God has never had a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
he has always kept or reserved for himself a remnant. And the remnant refers to a number smaller than the world which belongs to God. And you will see that in the next sermon. We'll see that in the next verses, where we will see the hardening. Spoke about it in chapter 9. But here we are told that even though there was a general apostasy of Israel as a nation, yet God has always had his own people, as proved by Paul as proved by Elijah, as proved by the 7,000 in their respective days, so that even though God has rejected Israel as a nation, yet it was not a total or absolute rejection of all the Jews. The remnant is not such a small number as your mind might be tempted to think. Because in Acts chapter 15, verse, verse 15 to 18, we are told, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes things known from over all. The Bible says in Acts chapter 21, verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified God. And this is what they said. You see, brother, how many millions, how many thousands there are among the Jews of whom, of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the Lord. That word translated thousands in the ESV can also be translated myriads of myriads of Jews who have believed. For Elijah, it's the 7,000. For James, there in Acts 21, 20, uh, verse 20, 21, verse 20, is myriads. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, many is not few, is it? So the remnant in Israel is saved by grace. The unmerited, unearthed, uh, excuse me, unearned and undeserved merit of God in Christ is the basis of the salvation of this remnant. It is not that they are smarter than the rest or that they worked harder than the rest. It's that God's grace found them. It's greater than all their sins. Grace means that God's choice upon them did not depend on them. 
but it depended on God being gracious. And he sovereignly instituted, maintained, and perpetuated their salvation. This is what was said earlier in Romans 9.16. So then, it, that is salvation, depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God, the will of God, who has mercy. It's grace. Grace. Grace alone. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 of this grace saving. And we are told that though you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace. Grace alone. You see, verse 6 is an exegetical commentary on verse 5. For it says, but it is, but if it is by grace, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is an exegetical commentary on verse 5 because verse 5 said, There is a remnant chosen by grace. What kind of grace? Grace of works. Since the election and for knowledge is spoken of is of grace, then any human works for merit is discounted, is rejected. This is to say that it does not depend on the bloodline or biological lineage. It does not depend on their nationality. It depends on God. So, children, you who are here, your dad and mama saved, praise God for that. But that does not save you. It exposes you to wonderful blessings of coming to church. You hear God's word. You hear the gospel. And it's expected that you will believe for yourself. And you'll be saved for yourself. Your father's faith cannot save you. I've used this illustration. If you are hungry and you tell your mom 
Mom, I'm hungry. Eat for me. Will that hunger you have disappear? So then if you're not saved, you have your own sins and you'll be condemned for your own sins. Children, I'm speaking to you. And your mom is saved. When you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, will God say, well, I know that your mother is saved. You go to heaven with her. Is that what God is going to say? If you think like that, that day you will be told, your mom and dad are saved, but you're not. Go away, I never knew you. You heard the gospel so many times, you heard of the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ, you do not believe. Go. It's good that you came to church so that you can hear this and start the year with salvation where you will go to the Lord yourself and say salvation is by grace. This grace is accessible both to me and to anyone else. Lord, save me. Save me. Save me. And he will not tell you, come on, you want to be saved and you're only seven. God will not tell you that. He will save you nonetheless. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There is mercy in the Lord. He will save even the very worst. Christ receives sinful man. This is to say that it does not depend on anything about them whether they are lineage, whether they are blood. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. They don't belong to the same group. The Bible says here that if it is by grace, then it cannot be by works. And if it is by works, it cannot be by grace. And if it is grace and you're saying that it is works, then you are mistaken. Uh, Charles Hoyt commenting on this verse, he has a very wonderful statement to make. Let me just quote it for you. He says, it is obvious that for seen works, it's an Armenian position, the foreseen works are as much excluded as any other works. For a choice founded upon the foresight of good works is really made on account of the works as by the apostle. That's the way it was for Paul, for Saul before he was converted. In the second place, the choice which is here declared to be so entirely gratu gratuitous is a choice to the kingdom of Christ. This is evident from the world context and especially from verse 7. It was from this kingdom and all its spiritual and eternal blessings that the Jews as a body were rejected and to which the remnant according to the election of, gra of grace was admitted. End of quote. So if we explore the alternative, we must because the apostle draws this to a logical conclusion. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So it is either grace or it is works. Not both. The two are different. And anyone clinging to his work or his merit or his own righteousness or his obedience of the law for justification is so, so seriously mistaken that he must turn an angle of 180 degrees. That's how he would be saved. For thinking it's, it works, it works. I'm telling you, no, it's grace. Grace alone, nothing else. And if you do 145 uh, or, or 45 degrees, it won't do. It has to be all the way. Turn around. There is no safety in your works. There is safety only in the merit and grace of Christ. Christ's own works. Christ's own righteousness. Christ's redemption is the only true redemption. So two things then in conclusion. We must be weaned off Elijah syndrome. I repeat. If we want to be rid of cage stage of thinking, where you are fighting everyone else and you want to have your blog, you want to have, you know, you want to have your, your hummery uh, uh, of fighting those who may hold contrary views. Wait. Wait. The Lord has his 7,000 who have not bowed or kissed Baal. Look for them. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. When you fight them, don't be too skeptical just because they did not cross your reformed I and cross your reformed T. Well, come along. Pastor Kevin told us this morning that being fruitful does not come overnight. You know, when you plant your first avocado today and tomorrow you want to go and harvest 20 avocados you are going to be disappointed you know even Mr. Wambogo who has his apples does not promise you that you will harvest your apples the following day he says at least 9 months can say that you know there are Wambogo apples it's not a day after. So we need to be charitable and patient with other people who are coming to know the truth. Amen? Then when we listen to people's testimonies of salvation, we should always ask the question, who is the Savior? Who are they depending on? You know, you, you listen to people talking about how they got saved. And they begin with, I was raised in a Christian home. That's no salvation. Okay? Being raised in a Christian home is of some advantage. Not bad. 
But that's not where your salvation, your testimony should begin. Your testimony should begin, I am saved by Jesus Christ, by grace alone, because I believe in him. And then give us the details. All right? You now tell us after that, no, my father was a pastor. Reached to us every day. Listen. But if you begin with anything else other than Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, then that's, not, that's not the way to begin your testimony. And you ask the question, is the person depending on their arm of flesh or on the, on the Savior Jesus Christ? If a person relies on his own works, he's not relying on grace and is thus mistaken. For the Bible says, if it is by grace, it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen.